In the practice of medicine, as it is in life, there are pros and cons to everything. Take, for example, STI screening. For sure, we should be identifying sexually transmitted infections, especially since the rise of certain STIs in the U.S. are on the rise. It's not just the U.S. I mean, they're on the rise everywhere. I mean, this is a global issue, but particularly here in the U.S. Well, one of the pros of using urine to check for STIs is, hey, it's non-invasive. You can do it on a population level. And those are all great things. I'd rather capture some STIs than none at all by not doing any testing. But the con is that a urine sample may not be as accurate, may not be as sensitive in the detection of certain STIs. So in this episode, I want to cover a new meta-analysis that is just coming out in the March and April edition of the Annals of Family Medicine. The lead author on this is Aaron. That's Crystal Aaron. And we're going to review this because it's something that we've known for a long time, but we get complacent and or we forget. We're going to cover the CDC's stance on this. We're going to cover how it applies to population levels, but as it applies to a population is very different as to how it applies to an individual patient. All right, those are two very different things. And we're also going to talk about why some of these gaps in sensitivity may exist because it all has to do with collection of this sample. All right, I don't want to give it away yet, but I've heard many MAs or NPs and even some residents trying to to do the patient right, try to help them out in their collection to say, don't forget, you got to wipe first and then collect your urine so we can send that out for uh, infections that you can get through sex. Yikes! That's absolutely what not to do. So we're going to cover not only the new data coming out from the March-April Annals of Family Medicine that looks at the sensitivity of urine for the detection of chlamydia, Neisseria, and trick. Okay, brand new meta-analysis from March, April 2023. But we're also going to relate to the proper steps. We're going to review the proper steps of how that first void, first catch urine really should be done. All right. Doesn't have to be first thing in the morning, but it does have to be first catch. Um, So I'm going to cover all of that in this episode. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Remember that the CDC and ACOG do state that there's three ways that STI screening can be done. The first is endocervical sampling. 
Second is vaginal swabbing, either by our provider or patient self-collected. And then the third are urine specimens. All three of those have been cleared by the U.S. FDA as sampling techniques using NATS, that's nucleic acid amplification tests, to look for the three common genital STIs, which is chlamydia, Neisseria gonorrhea, and trich vaginalis. In 2009, the CDC did recommend the use of either vaginal swabs or endocervical sampling as the first line as being ideal for these three STI screens, recognizing that urine testing does have a role in the place at times. All right, podcast family, right off the bat, I am not against urine screening for STIs, all right? I'm not. I think they have a place. They definitely have a role in mass screening. I work in a university setting, and sometimes we have free events uh, where students can come in and get checked. Well, we used to do that. I don't think we do that anymore. Nonetheless, uh, it's a great way to prevent STIs in that perfect target population, right? CDC says, please screen at least once uh, women and men under the age of 25 who have risk-taking sexual behavior. Obviously, check more than that if they have risk factors, but at least once at 25 and below. Perfect. Well, one of the advantages of checking for urine is, man, you can screen a lot of people. And it's fine. On a population level, I'd rather you find some and miss others than not find any at all. So that's okay. But even in the CDC's guidance, it does state that urine sensitivities for STIs, specifically three, we're talking about gonorrhea, chlamydia, and trichomonas. For those three, urines can miss up to 10% of infections. Now, it depends on how you read that, all right? 10%, you're like, well, 10% being missed is better than 100% being missed if you don't screen them at all. And that's right. But 10% can be devastating. That's a big number. So remember, there's a time and place for urine screening as it applies to a population. Believe it or not, urine screening is actually mentioned as one of the ways to check for public health standards. It's in the CDC's guidance from the Department of Health and Human Services for mass refugee screening when they're entering the country. I mean, you can check them. Obviously, you need to check them for TB, other communicable diseases. And it's actually a thing. It's it's not, you know, being biased or kind of being rude. I mean, we're looking for infectious communicable diseases. And on a population level, again, on a, on a large mass of people checking their urine for STIs is allowed. But on an individual basis, especially if the patient is presenting there in the clinic, it's much better to do either a self-collected, where the patient self-collects with instruction, or a provider-collected swab for STI rather than urine. Notice what we said there with patient instruction, with information as to how they should collect this. So simply giving the patient a swab and saying, hey, just kind of swab down there for a little bit and then put it into the little vial, that's fine, but it's not best practice. I mean, they need to know what they're doing and how they're collecting it. So by best practice for a self-collected vaginal swab, remember this is vaginal, uh, but it still includes a swab of the outer introitus, okay, and periurethral area, because that's where the gonorrhea, chlamydia, trick secretions accumulate. So the proper instruction for a patient self-collection is, hey, I'm going to give you a swab, just separate the lips of the labia with one hand, you can use the glove if you want to, you know, everyone's different, uh, and then swab the outer part of the vagina, right from, from the, right by the opening, swab right there, and then place the swab inside the vagina about three-fourths of the way. Then as it's pulling out, they're supposed to kind of swab in a circular fashion the walls of the vagina to collect secretions and then 
put it into the into the receptacle, put it into the uh, into the vial. So even though it's a vaginal swab, there is value here in swabbing the external area, the outer introitus uh, and the vulvar area, because that's where secretions collect. All right. So that's a big clinical pro here. Patients need the instructions on how to do this correctly. Oh, and here's another big tip. If you're going to have the patient self-swab, it's important that they do that before you do any kind of speculum examination. Because once you do a speculum examination, especially if there's gel on that speculum, then they're going to self-swab and they're going to collect. It's going to be full of gel. It's going to be full of lube, and that's going to decrease its sensitivity. So before you do, if you're not going to do it, before you do anything to the vagina... Uh, have them self-collect, not destroy, not destroy or disrupt uh, any secretions that may harbor organisms there. Right, so this is one of the issues that decreases sensitivity. Is that they've had a whole exam, like, oh my gosh, I forgot to check you for STIs. Here, just self-swab. That's a no-go because gel and even the speculum can remove secretions that you're trying to collect. So if you've already instrumented the vagina. Uh, then it's best to say, look, I'm sorry, uh, I, I, I can't allow you to self-collect um, or even leave a urine because it's going to decrease the sensitivity of it. Uh, do you mind? I'm so sorry. I, I really need to place the speculum back in and check for cervical secretions. So remember, have the patient do that first or you collect that first if you're not doing a full speculum examination because any kind of instrumentation into the vagina, especially with gel, can decrease the sensitivity of the test. All to say, it's important that patients have the proper instruction on how to self-collect that vaginal swab. Here's the other big clinical pearl regarding urine collection for STI screening. And we talked about this a little bit in the intro. Remember, this should not be midstream. This should be first catch. And you should never use an antibacterial wipe at the outer portion of the introitus because that wipes away the secretions that you're trying to get. Now, that's fine. That makes sense. First void, not midstream, and don't wipe. I get that. But did you also know that the sensitivity of a urine test depends on how much urine is actually collected? You see, well stated by the Infectious Disease Society of America and the CDC guidelines, collecting a larger sample of urine will dilute the organism and it decreases the chance of being detected on analysis. So only the first 5 up to 20 mLs max of urine should be collected into the container if you're screening for STI. So say, collect it, go ahead and void right into this little cup, you know, don't touch anything else and just just void right in here. And when you get to the just the beginning of the little collection, again, only about 5 to 20 mLs max, uh, then stop collecting because too much volume can dilute the sample and give a false negative result. As a final reminder of things that we learned before, but we tend to forget because that's human nature, is remember that clean midstream urine samples are the worst for detection of STIs. We want a, quote, dirty, meaning non, non-wiped first, dirty first collected sample. And again, no more than 5 to 20 mLs of urine should be collected and sent for analysis. Oh, and here's another big tip in Clinical Pearl. Before asking the patient to leave a first catch urine for STI screen, we're supposed to ask when she last voided. Because if she voided within the hour, that can also lead to a false negative. You see, it takes time for that purulent discharge associated with trichomonas, GC, or chlamydia to recollect in front of and within the urethral opening. So if the patient has voided, if she's urinated, 
generated within the hour of collection, it's likely going to be falsely negative. Now, isn't that interesting? Now, we haven't even gotten to the data of this new publication, this new meta-analysis. But as you can see, we're kind of setting the stage here as to why urine testing on an individual basis, not population level, but on an individual basis, does not have the same sensitivity as either a patient self-collected swab or provider-collected swab. Do you all see this? Because of all these caveats that go into play. So for a first-catch urine specimen, it cannot be midstream, they cannot have wiped, they cannot have voided uh, within the hour, and they can't collect too much. See, those are a lot of variables that go into this urine test for STI. And there's a lot of risk here in missing this because, as we know, there's a lot of morbidity with missing an STI, not just for the individual female health, but for transmission and for public safety in, on the bigger level. Oh, as a quick aside, the authorship of this new meta-analysis are from two places. The first is University of Alabama at Birmingham, and the second is out of a UNT, out of the University of North Texas Health Science Center. Uh, so we have a Texan represented here on this study, and then UAB. I love that. I love when great institutions just collaborate, share data, uh, and contribute to the medical literature. So great job, UAB and UNT Health Science Center. Two incredible locations. Yay. Before we get into this new data, this new meta-analysis, I have no idea why trick vaginalis is not considered reportable. Uh, I've covered that on previous podcasts. I've asked public health experts. I've asked uh, leaders in Infectious Disease Society of America. Why don't we, wh what is going on here? I mean, we notify, we track chlamydia and uh, gonorrhea. Um, but why is trick not reportable? Why is that not a notifiable illness? Is that weird or what? I mean, trichomonas is actually the most common, treatable, curable, non-viral STI in the entire world. We, we've covered that in previous uh, episodes. Uh, I have no idea. I, I don't know uh, what, what that, that fallout is, but it is what it is. So if you ever asked, is trichomonas reportable or notifiable, uh, right now uh, it's not. All right, so I couldn't help myself. So I just pulled up the 2023 Texas Notifiable Conditions through the State Department of Health, uh, the list of what things are reportable. I mean, I know what's on there already, but I'm just making a point here. Uh, all right, so we have smallpox. Oh, that's reportable. That's Hopefully we don't see that, but that's on the list. Yersiniosis. Okay, yeah, that's on there. Uh, HIV, that's a good one. That needs to be on there. Trichinosis, not trichomoniasis, but trichinosis. Uh, okay, tick-borne relapsing fever, Q fever. Hmm, it's been a long time that I've seen Q fever, like never. Uh, Chagas disease is on there. Okay, I mean, I guess it's out there. I've never seen it. My whole point is, <laughs> these, these are all great. These need to be reported on. But can't we include something that's super common, like trichomoniasis? Uh, I see that way more, honestly, uh, than gonorrhea. Uh, probably comparable to chlamydia, I guess, in my patient population. That may not be your pop patient population, but it's definitely my patient population. Uh, and this is why I'm, I'm just I'm just dumbfounded. I don't understand. Why is trick not reportable? All right. Dang, that's my little soapbox. I got to get back to the data. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, 
All these ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. This publication that we're summarizing was a systematic search of multiple databases spanning lots of years from 1995 to 2021 that had five criteria. The first one is easy, right? It had to be published in English. Fine. The other qualification was that it had to be a study that used a commercially available assay to report results. It had to have presented data for women. Right? So we're talking about, again, the female population. As, I'm not talking about males. Again, we're women's healthcare providers. I'm not getting into that. This has to do specifically for women. And that's what this meta-analysis targeted as well. The third criteria is that it included data obtained from the same assay on both a urine specimen and a vaginal swab from the same patient as a comparison. So patients served as their own control. That's good. The fourth was it had to have a reference standard to report. And of course, the last qualification that we've already stated, the fifth one, is that the studies had to be published in English. The authors identified 28 eligible articles with 30 comparisons for the chlamydia cohort, 16 comparisons being made for Neisseria gonorrhea, and 9 comparisons for trig vaginalis. Listen to these sensitivities. For vaginal swabs and urine, respectfully. All right, so vaginal swabs is going to be the first number. The urine sensitivity is going to be the second number. For chlamydia, it was 94% for vaginal swab and 86.9% for chlamydia. For Neisseria gonorrhea, sensitivities were 96.5 with the vaginal swab and 90.7 for urine. And for trick vaginalis, it was 98% for a vaginal swab and 95% for trichomonas. The authors concluded after their meta-analysis and stratification of data that, quote, evidence from this study supports the CDC's recommendation that vaginal swabs are the optimal sample type for women being tested for chlamydia, gonorrhea, and or trichomoniasis, end quote. Let's break this down. If you notice, the authors didn't say not to use urine. Did you get that? Because, there, again, there's a role for urine testing more on a population level. But especially if the patient is already there in your presence, in the clinic, where an MA, NP, uh, PA, physician, anybody can give the patient proper instruction to self-collect, or the provider can do it themselves and collect. That's fine. But you see here that they're not the same. They're not equal in their sensitivities. Now, let me be devil's advocate for a minute. So if let's take, for example, uh, gonorrhea. All right. So for a vaginal swab, it was 96.5% sensitive and 90.7% sensitive based on urine. All right. So swab 96.5, uh, urine 90.7. I get it. The devil's advocate would say, eh, man, it's 90%. I mean, let it go. Uh, no, would you let it go if that was you, if that was your partner, uh, child? Uh, just in a bigger context, is that what we're looking for? Is good enough, uh, good enough for us, or do we want uh, the better option? And that's really what it comes down to. That's why no one is going to discard urine at all. I mean, it does have a role because once again, we'd rather catch the 90% than the zero by not testing anyone. So th these numbers are not drastic as if they're 20 points off, but it does make the point that others have shown as well that these are not comparable. Remember, the CDC says, uh, hey, you can miss it up to 10%. So there's a difference here between allowable and comparable. So I think those words mean a lot, and the CDC has used that in a previous brief from um, the monthly morbidity and weekly report 
that, you know, they're allowable on a population level, but to say that they're comparable means that they're, they're, they're pretty darn close. And so when you have these spreads in these numbers, uh, even like, let's take, for example, for chlamydia. The sensitivity for chlamydia was 94.1 on a vaginal swab and 86.9 for urine. Uh, I mean, that that's not comparable. It's good, but it's not comparable. So just a quick word of caution. Allowable and comparable are different. Population level testing is great with urine. But if the patient is there in your clinic, maybe best to have them either self-swab if it's uh, considered too invasive for a provider to do or offer a provider's collected swab if the patient is okay with that. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have highlighted a new publication coming out of the Annals of Family Medicine. The title of this publication is Vaginal Swab versus Urine for Detection of Chlamydia Trichomatis, Nasiri Gonorrhea, and Trick Vaginalis, a meta-analysis. Once again, this is published in the March-April edition of 2023 of the Annals of Family Medicine. As always, we're thankful for you and we're glad that you're part of our podcast community and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.